Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today we'll be going over all of the other victims recovered along the shores of Long Island and whether or not they might be linked. Small talk always sucks, so let's dive in. If you haven't listened to last week's episode about the Gilgo Beach documents, definitely go back and listen to that first because we're going to start this episode off by talking about the man at the center of that case, Rex Heuerman. I've also heard it pronounced Heuerman, so I'm doing my best. Rex Heuerman was born and raised in Massapequa Park, Long Island. He went to Burner High School and went on to get a degree in architectural technology from the New York Institute of Technology. In 1990, he interned at a construction corporation in Freeport, which is a county in Long Island where one of his alleged victims, Melissa's, phone pinged following her death. Rex got married to his first wife on September 29, 1990. They wound up divorcing and he married again a second time to a woman we'll call Anna. Anna was married to Rex at the time of his arrest last month, but filed for divorce a week later. Rex and Anna lived in his childhood home, which CBS reports he bought from his mom back in 1994. An ad in the January 17, 1999 Newsday Suffolk Edition newspaper listed Rex's current address as his business address as an architect. That home was essentially ransacked during law enforcement's 12-day search for evidence, and his family has been vocal about how upsetting all of that was. They've also gotten a lot of shit for being upset about it. But I do think it's important to remember that they were all living extremely normal lives until their husband and father was charged with the murder of three women. And I can only assume it's just a matter of time before that number is changed to four. I also think it's important to note the other side that police were searching for evidence relating to multiple murders, and there is reason to believe that some of his victims may have been in his house when Anna was out of town. In photos, you can see that the tile floor was removed from one of the bathrooms, and a piece was cut out of the side of one of their bathtubs. Unfortunately for innocent bystanders, the family in this case, police are focused on finding evidence, not preserving the home of the charged. Tidiness cannot be their priority when trying to solve a murder, let alone three or maybe even four. Just going to throw this out there because I didn't know where else to put this in this episode, but according to CBS, police found more than 200 guns inside a vault in that house. 
only 92 of which Rex had permits for. That's like 199 more than one. When it comes to Rex's victims, there are a few similarities to note. They were all known sex workers in their 20s, and they all had ties to Manhattan and Long Island. Two of the three he's charged with were under five feet tall, but if you were to include Maureen, who he hasn't been charged with, that would put a fourth under five feet tall. His alleged victims were bound with either belts or clear or white duct tape, and some were wrapped in burlap. Rex has yet to be charged with the death of Maureen Brainard Barnes, even though she is mentioned extensively in the bail documents, which detailed how Rex was identified, connected, and charged with the deaths of Melissa, Megan, and Amber. Because this episode is about Gilgo Beach victims that no one has been charged with, let's start with Maureen. According to CBS, Maureen was a single mother of two who lived in Connecticut. She was the kind of person who made sure everyone else was taken care of before she took care of herself, which is why in 2007, she turned to sex work, something she was not proud of. She was facing eviction at the time and had applied for countless jobs but wasn't getting any of them. Her sons losing their home was not an option, so she turned to sex work because it paid the bills. She hated every second of it, but she loved her children more. And this was the one reliable means of income she had to make sure she could continue to provide for them. Maureen would advertise her services on Craigslist, like Rex's other alleged victims. And in July of 2007, she took a train to New York City to meet up with some clients she had booked online. CBS reports that she checked into the Super 8 Motel in Manhattan, which, if I'm looking at the right one, is located less than a mile from some of the cell phone pings mentioned in last week's episode. Maureen's body was found among the bodies of Melissa, Megan, and Amber, who were all in close proximity to one another along Ocean Parkway. But Amber's body seems to have been found in a slightly different way than the others. Most reports tend to lump all of their scenes together, but in reading between the lines, it looks like one of the bodies may not have been found wrapped in burlap, and it looks like that might have been Maureen's body. Burlap material would have loosely matched the color of the brush alongside the road, so you have to wonder, if Rex killed Maureen, was the use of burlap a learned behavior? She was killed two years before his next alleged victim, so is it possible that maybe he had driven by her body or something and been able to see it and took note to do something to avoid that in the future? Another difference was that Maureen was found bound with belts, while it looks like the other women were bound with clear or white duct tape. One of the belts had the very end of it cut off, but the one used to bind her ankles had not been cut. On the end of that belt were the engraved initials WH. The H was one hell of a coincidence, considering Rex's last name is Hewerman, but what about the W? Well, I found an obituary published in the March 5th, 1964 Newsday Suffolk Edition newspaper that listed the death of a 76-year-old man named William Hewerman. The obituary goes on to state that William is survived by his son, Theodore Hewerman, of Massapequa Park. Rex's father's name is Theodore Hewerman and is listed as a previous owner of the Massapequa Park home that Rex purchased from his family. 
Is it possible that Rex's father inherited some of William's things, like his engraved belts? Rex's father died when he was young, and we know that he purchased the family home, so is it too far-fetched to think that maybe he had been in possession of those belts when Maureen went missing in 2007? We're going to go over the details of several other victims found along Gilgo Beach and whether or not they might link back to Rex in any way, but Maureen's case just feels like a matter of time. Before we dive into all of the other victims found on Gilgo Beach, we have to talk about another man convicted of killing sex workers on Long Island. If we want to draw lines towards one killer, I think it's only responsible to know about the MO of the other. So the other man we need to talk about is John Bitroff, a name that Rex Hewerman's burner email took the time to Google. John Bitroff was a man living a double life. He was married with two kids, lived in Manorville, Long Island, and worked as a carpenter. He was extremely well-liked, and his arrest absolutely floored his community. This was one of those cases where no one saw it coming. A neighbor of his actually told CBS, He's like the mayor of this town. He knows everybody. He helps everybody out. His own family didn't believe he was guilty of the crimes he was accused of and stood by him throughout the trial process. Regardless of their disbelief and support, 51-year-old John Bitroff was convicted in 2017 for the murders of Rita Tingretti and Colleen McNamee. 31-year-old Rita was a mother who had turned to sex work to support herself. On November 1, 1993, CBS reports that she was seen hitchhiking down Montauk Highway east of County Road 101. Mapping that out, it's about 10 miles west of John's home. The following morning, Rita's body was found in a wooded area off of Esplanade Drive, which looks like a cluster of woods in the middle of a neighborhood. That area is 15 miles west of John's home and six miles west of where she had been seen hitchhiking. The Citizen reports that Rita was found partially nude, posed with her legs apart, and there were wood chips on her body. Specific items of clothing were reportedly missing, and digging a little further, it looks like it was likely her underwear and left shoe. Rita died from strangulation and suffered severe blunt force trauma to her head that left her skull shattered and brain matter visible. Less than three months later, on January 30th, 1994, another body was found in a very similar fashion. It was the body of 20-year-old Colleen McNamee, a bubbly, fun girl who the New York Post reports was known for being the peacemaker in high school. Unfortunately, she started hanging out with the wrong crowd, and the Sag Harbor Express reports that it's believed she turned to sex work. Just like Rita, Colleen was found partially nude in a wooded area near the William Floyd Parkway, which is roughly six or so miles from John's home. She had been posed with her legs spread apart, wood chips were found near her body, and those same specific items missing from Rita were also missing from Colleen. Her cause of death was strangulation, and she too had suffered severe blunt force trauma to her head. 
Both Rita and Colleen's cases went unsolved for almost 20 years until People reports that John's brother violated a protective order and was required to give a sample of his DNA. That DNA came back as a familial match to the DNA recovered from both victims. Police followed both John and his other brother and collected each of their DNA. John's brother was not a match, but John was. He was arrested in July of 2014 and three years later was handed two consecutive sentences of 25 years to life. But there's someone else we need to talk about, Sandra Castilla. Sandra's body was found on November 20th, 1993, which is just 18 days after Rita's body had been discovered. The Sag Harbor Express reports that Sandra was not a sex worker, but a rep for the DA's office stated that she lived a similar lifestyle to both Rita and Colleen. Sandra's body was found partially nude off of Old Cove Road, which is another kind of residential area. She had been beaten and strangled to death and was found similarly posed. Wood chips were found at the scene of her body and a significant piece of clothing was missing. To this day, no one has been charged with her murder, but you can see why John is slash was a suspect. Now that you know about both Rex and John, their patterns, and their charges slash convictions, let's get to the other victims that have been long attributed to the quote-unquote Long Island serial killer. We're going to start with Valerie and Jessica because the chance that they're not at least connected to one another seems almost impossible. Twenty-four-year-old Valerie Mack was a Pennsylvania mother of two boys who had, for whatever reason, turned to sex work and would sometimes go by the name of Melissa Taylor. I want to ask real quick that everyone please try and not judge these women because of their occupation and simply focus on the fact that they were human beings with value who meant a lot to the people who loved them. Too many serial killers have sought out women they don't think anyone will care about, so let's work on proving them wrong. Valerie was last seen in the spring of 2000, and on November 19th of that year, her torso was found off of Halsey Manor Road in Manorville, Long Island. Eleven years later, in May of 2011, her head, hands, and right foot were found in bags on Gilgo Beach. In 2011, Valerie was still a Jane Doe, and it was DNA testing on the remains on Gilgo Beach that tied them to the torso found in Manorville. It wasn't until May of 2020 that genetic genealogy gave her her name back. The other victim that feels like it has to be tied to Valerie is 20-year-old Jessica Taylor. According to the Long Island Press, she was feisty and not afraid to stand up for herself, but unfortunately did turn to sex work. She was last seen between July 18th and 21st near the Port Authority bus terminal in Manhattan. Her torso was found a week or so later on July 26 off of none other than Halsey Manor Road in Manorville, less than a quarter mile from where Valerie's body had been found a year prior. An effort had been made to try and disfigure a tattoo she had, long thin cuts had been made through it, but the medical examiner's office was able to determine that it was a heart with angel wings and contained the words Remy's Angel. It was a detective from D.C. who recognized that tattoo and was able to give Jessica her name back. 
Seven years later, her skull, hands, and forearms were found along Ocean Parkway in Gilgo Beach. Because both of their torsos were found in such close proximity to one another off of Halsey Manor Road and their additional remains were found so close to one another 44 miles away in Gilgo Beach, it seems almost ridiculous to think that they weren't killed by the same person. But when you think about their deaths potentially being linked to Rex and John, neither of those men seem to be an obvious fit as far as M.O. While Valerie was only five feet tall and both women were found roughly four miles from John's home, neither John nor Rex dismembered their victims. Jessica's boyfriend, or the man sometimes referred to as her pimp, told Annie's The Killing Season that the Homicide Squad had told him she had been found wrapped in burlap, but all of the reports that I've seen said that her torso was found on a plastic sheet. I cannot confirm nor deny the validity of his statement, but I would be remiss not to mention it. The next two victims we're going to talk about are Peaches and Baby Doe. Peaches is the name given to a Jane Doe, and she was a black female whose torso was found in a green Rubbermaid container near McDonald Pond on June 28, 1997. McDonald Pond is a small body of water in the middle of a huge residential area west of Freeport, Long Island. Along with her torso was a red towel and a dark, almost embroidered-looking floral pillowcase. According to the Long Island Press, police believe she'd been dead for about three days prior to being discovered. Peaches got her name because she had a tattoo of a peach on her chest that had a bite taken out of it and two drips dripping down. Police released a photo of it in a tattoo magazine in the hopes that the artist might recognize it and help them ID the victim, and it kind of worked. According to the Doe Network, an artist out of Connecticut remembered tattooing that exact piece on a black female. He remembered her being about 18 or 19 years old and had come in with her aunt and cousin. He said she mentioned something about living in New York, but being in Connecticut because she was having issues with her boyfriend. His recollection felt like a step in the right direction, but unfortunately, it didn't get police any closer to figuring out who Peaches was, and they were determined. The torso had shown evidence of a C-section scar, and police knew that somewhere in the world, someone was missing their mom. That sentiment was going to be soul-crushing 14 years later. In April of 2011, law enforcement on Gilgo Beach stumbled upon remains of what could only be a toddler. According to the Long Island Press, the toddler's body was found just 150 feet from where Valerie's additional remains were found. The toddler's body was determined to belong to a biracial female between the ages of 16 and 24 months. Small, inexpensive gold jewelry was found with her body, indicating that she had been wearing it at the time of her death. DNA determined that even though they didn't know who Baby Doe was, she was most definitely Peach's daughter. A week after locating Baby Doe, additional remains belonging to her mom were found in Jones Beach State Park, which is just 10 miles down the road on Ocean Parkway. Those remains also included inexpensive gold jewelry similar to Baby Doe's. 
This one is tough because both Peaches and her daughter have never been formally identified, regardless of how hard law enforcement has tried. All we have to work with is how their bodies were found, where their bodies were found, and that tattoo artist's recollection. If it was Peaches in Connecticut, there'd been some kind of issue with her boyfriend that drove her to leave the state. But knowing her body was found in New York, that would have to mean that she came back. If her body had been by the pond for three days prior to her being found, that means that she was still alive on June 24, 1997. So who was dating a woman with a child who both suddenly disappeared on a Wednesday? What biracial toddler on Long Island stopped getting checkups and vaccines after June 24, 1997? When trying to determine whether or not Rex or John could be responsible for the deaths of Peaches and Baby Doe, once again, they just don't seem to fit. That being said, it's hard not to notice the similarities between Peach's torso being found separate from the rest of her remains and Valerie and Jessica's remains following that same pattern. Peach's torso was concealed in a Rubbermaid tub, though, whereas Valerie and Jessica's were left out in the open. Just like Valerie and Jessica, additional remains belonging to Peaches were found near Gilgo Beach, but we don't know anything else about Peaches. We don't know if she was a sex worker, but even if she was, why would her killer also kill her child? Even though Peaches' death does have some similarities to the deaths of Valerie and Jessica, I just still don't think they're connected. Peaches and Baby Doe's deaths almost seem personal. The next victim we're going to talk about was a Jane Doe until Friday, August 4th, 2023. The woman, long referred to as Fire Island Doe, has been given her name back and is 34-year-old Karen Vergata. The New York Times reports that it's believed Karen was a sex worker who lived on West 54th Street in Manhattan at the time of her disappearance. Her last known contact was on Valentine's Day of 1996 when she called to wish her dad a happy birthday. Less than two months later, on April 20th, her legs were found wrapped in plastic on Fire Island's Blue Point Beach. All anyone knew at the time was that her toes had been painted red and she had likely had surgery on her left ankle. Fifteen years later, in 2011, Karen's skull was found along Ocean Parkway, very close to where Peach's additional remains were found. No one knew much about Karen until a couple of weeks ago, but we know now that she was a mother of two boys who had no idea that their mother had been killed, let alone that she was Fire Island Doe until that press conference. Comparing Karen's case to all of the others, we can draw a couple of similarities. We know that she was dismembered and that her remains were found near Peaches, but neither of those things tie her to Rex nor John. We know that her legs were wrapped in plastic and Jessica's torso was reportedly found on top of a sheet of plastic, but Karen's torso has never been found. If her case shows similarities to any of the others, I'd say it's closest to Valerie and Jessica's, but their cases have never been solved and maybe it's time to start taking a hard look into the Long Island torso murders. The next victim we're going to talk about is a J-Doe, the only biological male recovered along the other Gilgo Beach victims in 2011, but J-Doe was found wearing women's clothes. Further testing determined that J. Doe was of Asian descent between the ages of 17 and 23. The Daily Mail reports that they were missing two molars and one of their front two teeth and died as a result of blunt force trauma. 
Police estimate that J. Doe's body had been along the beach for five to ten years, so they were likely left there between 2001 and 2006. Had I not read through the Gilgo documents, I probably would have assumed J. Doe's death was unrelated, but Rex made one single Google search that changed that. Rex's burner phone email searched Asian twink tied up porn. I had to look up the term twink because I didn't want to regurgitate anything wildly offensive without knowing the origin. And according to dictionary.com, it means among gay men, a gay or bisexual young man with a slim build and a youthful appearance. Knowing J. Doe was young, found wearing women's clothing in the vicinity of known murdered sex workers and was not dismembered, it does make you wonder if maybe they're somehow connected. Before we get to the final victim of this episode and probably the one you've heard the most about, I want to talk about the three murdered sex workers out of Atlantic City who were found in a ditch along Route 40. A lot of people have wondered if maybe Rex had something to do with their deaths, but as it stands, police have found no reason to believe he's involved at all. Their names are Molly Diltz, Kim Raffo, Tracy Ann Roberts, and Barbara Brador. They have yet to receive the same justice that Rita and Colleen have, or the justice that Melissa, Megan, and Amber are on their way to getting. The last victim we're going to talk about is probably the most widely mentioned victims when it comes to discussions of the Long Island serial killer, and that is 24-year-old Shannon Gilbert. She's widely referred to as simply a sex worker, but she was so much more than that. Her sister told CBS that Shannon was in school to be a writer, but had big dreams of becoming a singer and an actress. Shannon struggled with diagnoses of depression and bipolar disorder and eventually turned to sex work. According to CBS, just after midnight on May 1st, 2010, Shannon and her driver Michael left Manhattan and headed towards a known client of hers in Oak Beach, Long Island. The house in Oak Beach was roughly four miles from where the Gilgo victims were found straight down Ocean Parkway. Shannon and Michael got to the client's house at around 2 a.m., which is a little bit interesting. If you take that route during the day, it can take up to an hour and 47 minutes to get there, but without any traffic, it should only take about an hour and 10 minutes. I don't know why it took them two hours to get to the client's house, but the consensus is they showed up at around 2 a.m. Michael stayed in the vehicle while Shannon went inside, and she stayed there for almost three hours until 4.41 a.m. when she called 911. The audio from that call has since been released, and you can hear three different voices while she's at the Oak Beach house, Shannon's, the driver's, and the client's. Shannon is obviously terrified and panicked as she tells the operator that someone is after her. Shannon wound up running from the client's house to one of his neighbor's house, a guy named Gus. Gus told CBS that it was 5 a.m. when he heard Shannon banging on his door and yelling help me over and over. He opened the door for her and says that she just stared at him and asked him again for help. Gus wound up calling 911 and told her to take a seat in a chair because the police were on their way, but she just looked at him and ran out the door. Gus went over to the door and noticed a black SUV driving slowly and then stopping, seemingly looking for Shannon. According to CBS, that's believed to have been her driver. 
As Gus was watching the SUV, he caught a glimpse of Shannon hiding under the boat in his yard, but once he saw her, Shannon took off again. Gus called 911 a second time at 5.21 a.m. After leaving Gus's yard, Shannon went to the door of a third neighbor, a woman named Barbara. Barbara also called 911, but by the time they showed up at 5.40, there was no sign of Shannon or Mike the driver anywhere. Her remains would be found 19 months later. In December of 2011, CBS reports that Shannon's shoes, jeans, and purse were found with her ID still inside. I saw it described as if she had been running out of her clothes. A few days later, her body was located about a quarter of a mile away, face down in a marsh. Her remains were almost completely intact, meaning she had not been dismembered. Her cause and manner of death were listed as undetermined, though the most common theory I've seen as far as law enforcement goes seems to center around Shannon dying from natural causes after trying to walk or run through the marsh. That being said, a second autopsy revealed that her hyoid bone had a break in it, which could indicate strangulation but isn't conclusive. Shannon's case has been discussed more frequently than probably any of the other victims because her mom, Mary, was on a complete and total mission to get justice for her daughter. They even made a movie about it on Netflix called Lost Girls. While there are some similarities to Shannon and the victims Rex is accused of killing, they just don't seem connected. The client she visited that night was not Rex, and she was seen alive after leaving his home. Police have spoken to the client, the driver, and the neighbors she spoke to after leaving that house, and none of them have been named a suspect. There was a weird instance where a doctor made a phone call to Shannon's mom, but there's been an endless debate as to what was said during that call. Her mom claims the doctor said he treated her the night she disappeared, but he denied ever making the call at all, at least until CBS pulled Mary's phone records and confirmed that that call did in fact happen exactly when she said it did. Police looked into him, and while they told CBS that he was a guy known for exaggerating and getting involved, they don't believe the doctor was involved in Shannon's death. Nonetheless, Shannon's family did file a wrongful death suit against him in 2012, but it was dismissed the following year. Mary genuinely believed that Shannon had died at the hands of a killer and was continuing her fight for justice when the unimaginable happened. On July 23, 2016, Mary was in her apartment when she was stabbed 227 times with a 15-inch kitchen knife, stripped of her clothes, brutally beaten with a fire extinguisher, and then the contents of the fire extinguisher were sprayed into her mouth. The person who did it was one of her other daughters, Sarah. If each stab wound took one single second, Sarah would have been stabbing her mother for nearly four entire minutes. According to the Daily Freeman, Sarah suffered from schizophrenia, practiced witchcraft, and claimed to believe her mother was evil, demonic, and deserved to die. In the months prior to her mother's murder, she reportedly drowned her puppy and threatened to kill her own eight-year-old son. It's no surprise that Sarah tried her hand at an insanity defense, but the jury didn't buy it and neither did her other sister, Stevie. Stevie told Newsday that she believes Sarah killed her mom because she was jealous of Mary and Stevie's relationship. In the end, Sarah was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. 2010 began a long look into a very dark world that Long Island residents didn't know they were living in. 
Intense efforts have been made to identify all of the victims along the shores, but to this day, some remain unnamed. The arrests of John Bitroff and Rex Hewerman have offered some answers, but so many still remain. Maureen, Sandra, Valerie, Jessica, Karen, Peaches, Baby Doe, and Jay Doe are still waiting for their chance at justice. For photos pertaining to this case, check out the Long Island Victims Highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley. We also go live there often, so turn on your notifications. I love talking to you guys. To get access to ad-free and bonus episodes, subscribe to our Apple Premium or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you love the podcast, feel free to leave a review. It makes my day every single time. And if you have a case you'd like to hear covered, share it with Big Mad True Crime on social media because all cases are covered by listener request. I'll be bringing you a brand new case next week, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. 